That was a portion of Myra Melford's composition, The Strawberry. She first recorded that piece on the first album by her band Snowy Egret in 2015, and then this version comes from when she was invited to perform with the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra in 2016 as part of their Handful of Keys concerts, which were a salute to the history of jazz piano. The album that came out of those concerts is really fascinating because most of it is very traditional, with all the other guests playing standards. But Melford brought in her own music, which was arranged for the orchestra by Ted Nash, and she really is the centerpiece of it. The Strawberry was the single they chose to release, and she actually got to write the liner notes to the album as well. Welcome to the third episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. If this is your first time listening, we're on iTunes and Stitcher, so I hope you'll subscribe and check out each of our previous episodes. I'm Phil Freeman, and this time out, I'm talking to Myra Melford. She's a really amazing figure in avant-garde jazz. She's been around since the 80s and has worked with numerous figures affiliated with the AACM, including Henry Threadgill, Roscoe Mitchell, Joseph Jarman, Nicole Mitchell, and Leroy Jenkins. She has a bunch of groups currently working, including Trio M with Mark Dresser on bass and Matt Wilson on drums, and Snowy Egret, which includes Ron Miles on cornet, Liberty Elman on guitar, Stomu Takeishi on bass, and Taishan Sori on drums. This year she recorded an album with Mia Masaoka and Zena Parkins that was released under the collective name MZM, and she's just made a new album with Snowy Egret, which will be out in 2018 sometime. I interviewed Myra Melford once about 10 years ago very briefly for an article about drummer Allison Miller, because Myra is in Allison's band Boom Tick Boom. And honestly, I can't even remember if it was a phone conversation or just an email exchange. But anyway, this conversation that you're about to hear was my first time talking to her at any length, and I found it really fascinating. In addition to her jazz work, she studied Indian music very deeply. She plays the harmonium as well as the piano. And she's a professor at UC Berkeley, so we talked about all of that and a whole bunch of other things. Also, I should note that this interview was recorded just a few days before Muhal Richard Abrams died, and she had quite a bit to say about him, so I hope you'll find that interesting as well. I'm going to play another short piece of music. Uh, This is the beginning of Bug by the MZM Trio. Melford is on piano, Parkins is on electric harp, and Masaoka is on the 21-string koto. And after that, we'll go right into my interview with Myra Melford. Thank you. 
So how old were you when you started playing piano? Well, I guess I must have been about, I'm thinking three, because um, <clears throat> uh, we we moved when I was about three and a half, and I remember playing the piano in our old house. Um, if I played it before then, I don't have any recollection of it, but my older siblings were um, <clears throat> already, I guess, in high school by the time I was that age, and they were taking piano lessons, so... I think I just got in the habit of climbing up on the piano bench when they weren't, you know, when they were done practicing or doing their lessons and just, you know, playing on my own for fun. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Did you come from a really big family or was there a big difference, big age difference between you it and your siblings? It was just a big age difference, yeah. Because oh, okay. it's just the three of us, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Were you like a surprise baby or something? Because I, yeah. I have an aunt who was like that. She was, you know there's about 12 years difference between her and the others yeah (laughs) yeah that's a good way of putting it (laughs) (laughs) so at what point did you decide that you wanted to be a professional musician that that was going to be your life and were your parents supportive of that decision well yes and no I mean um I you know for some reason when I was in first grade so I started taking you know studying piano in kindergarten Mm-hmm. And um, by first grade, I was, you know, just starting to read. And my my favorite thing to do was to read the these, you know, children's books about the lives of great composers and stuff like that. And I I remember in first grade, the teacher asking us what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I said, a conductor. And I, I'm not sure where I even got that idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I'd been to hear an orchestra probably uh, or maybe not even that early in age. I might have just heard about it from my parents. I'm not sure. Read about it in one of these books. Um, but somehow, even at that age, I had this inkling that I was going to be a musician um, and make my life in music. But I, it wasn't thinking performer or composer or something like that. Um, I think I really didn't come back around to that idea again until I was in college. Oh, okay. Okay. And they were behind you when you sort of, you know, dropped this on them? Well, let's put it this way. I think they were supportive when I was in first grade. (laughs) I didn't get any pushback then, but um, it was a mixed thing. I think, you know, my father was of a generation that felt like, you know, if I was going to do something like that, then I'd need a husband to support me. (laughs) <laughs> or that was not a practical job for a mm-hmm. woman to have, or for anyone to have, for that matter. My brother, um, who, you know, who was 13 years older than me, had for a while was making a go of a career in music. Um, uh, he ended up mostly producing and that kind of thing. But um, I think... I don't think my father was particularly supportive of that either. Um, But I remember, you know, I went out to see my father. My parents had moved. uh, I grew up in a suburb of Chicago, but they moved to Arizona for my father's health. And gosh, after, you know, once I was in college and Uh um, I went down there to visit them. And I, I actually had was already living in New York and was starting to play professionally. Um, so this must have been in the late 80s. And um, 
and I remember my dad looking at me and saying, Myra, you're get, you know you're going to have to give this up and get a real job. <laughs> and I felt so bad that he didn't live long enough to see that, you know, I could actually make a life from it. So I guess I didn't really have that kind of support from my parents. My mother didn't really weigh in too much one way or the other, but um, she certainly, you know, she would come to hear me play once I was playing bigger mm -hmm. places like the Chicago Jazz Festival and stuff. And I know that had to have been a thrill for her. Yeah, yeah. Now, you you were already in New York, you said, when this happened. So I want to kind of jump to that, to your sort of early years on the New York scene. How did you get hooked up with Henry Threadgill? Because it seems like he was a big mentor early on. Yeah. Well, it was actually my introduction to the AACM came while I was a college student in Olympia, Washington. I um, I ended up going to Evergreen State College, which is an um, you know kind of an experimental school, and um, I got turned on to the AACM because um, several of those guys came through and played in Olympia when I was um, had decided to switch from science back to music as kind of what I wanted to pursue. And um, Leroy Jenkins came through early on. I had just started taking jazz piano lessons, actually, kind mm -hmm. of on a whim. And uh, Leroy came through with Amina Claudine Myers and Faron Akloff. And I went to their concert, and honestly, I had no idea what they were doing. I had just started listening to bebop. But it was like this light bulb went off over my head, and I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to figure out how I want to play the piano. I want to figure out how how to write music of my own for myself to improvise on and, and so on. So I wanted to do what Leroy was doing, and Leroy was super supportive. He came through a couple times. He came back again with Oliver Lake in a duo, and I remember talking to him, and he just gave me his phone number. He said, when you move to New York give me a call. And Braxton said something similar. He was another, he came through playing solo. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And um, so I was like, okay, this is the music that I'm most excited about. I mean, I was also super into Cecil Taylor and various innovative artists, you mm -hmm. know, listening to a lot of recordings from the 60s and 70s. Well, this was like the late 70s. So I, and Douglas Ewart came through also. Um, and I knew Douglas was still in Chicago with the AACM, and he was the one who introduced me to Threadgill. I said, I'm going to move to New York, and uh, I'm going to contact Leroy and these guys. Um, and he said, oh, you should contact Henry, too. And he gave me Henry's contact, you know, phone number or whatever. Mm -hmm. So Leroy had a workshop that I joined right when I first moved to New York where uh, students would come in one evening a week and play through his music and talk about improvising and all this kind of stuff. And I met a flute player there named Marion Brandis, and she and I formed a duo um, in the mid and late 80s and, and kind of got our start together on the scene. And um, she said, you know, I think I want to try to study composition with Henry. And I said, that's a cool idea. If he accepts you as a student, I'll, I'll, you know, I would like to do that too. And he was into it. So we both studied with him, I think. I know I did anyway. I can't remember if she did or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he was like my first composition teacher. And, um, and you know, 
I still have a good relationship with him, but um, he, you know, he was, I mean, not only do I love his music, but, you know, I, he, you know, sat down and talked to me about how he thought about writing, what kind of systems he explored, what he was trying to do, and, you know, and then I would go off and try to write something, um, you know, using some of his ideas. And I have to say, they still form the core of how I approach composing today. That was, yeah, that was my next question is, what did you take away from his music or his theories, you know, that applied to your own work? Several things. One was that, um, you know, he had this idea that, um, I think he even referred to it as organic composition. Um, and I, I want to preface this now by saying, you know, these are all, a lot of the things he was teaching me were things that I've come to discover were ideas that he got from other composers, uh, especially in sort of, um, you know, the 20th century uh, classical, for lack of a better word, really new music, modern and contemporary music in the 20th century. Um but because I didn't study them in an institution, I got them through Henry's point of view, which was really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but one of them was this idea that, um, you know, that uh, the form of the piece should grow out of like an initial cell or idea that you, you know, that you base the piece upon. Um, rather than deciding, oh, I'm going to write an AAB piece or I'm going to write an ABCD piece or, you know, something that had some kind of structure we might have seen elsewhere in classical music. Um, so the idea would be that you would take a phrase, whether made up or, you know, part of a tone row or, you know, it could come from any number of, um, it could be something that was a chance, developed through a chance operation like throwing dice or something. But you'd start with this initial, say, 6 to 12 note pitch set or phrase of music mm -hmm. and, and you know, then create all kinds of permutations and variations of that idea. Um, and he showed me a number of ways to do that, um, all of which I still use. I've also learned more and developed some of my own over the years. But And then, you know, kind of play with and listen to all of that material until I start to hear what I like, what might sound good together, what what one instrument might play and what another might play, and um, you know, and and allow the form the, or the structure of the piece to grow out of how I order and um, uh, work with those permutations. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, because that's something that I've noticed about Threadgill's music is that a lot of it is for lack of a better phrase, sort of band-based. Like, once he decides who the instrumentalists are, that influences the sound a lot in terms for of... sure. You know, in terms of what he'll compose for those guys, you know? Yeah, and I, I think it's a combination of players for him and instrumentation. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we can think if we look at Henry's bands over the last 30 years, he's been exploring different unusual often unusual instrumentations yeah yeah you know than you would find in a in a in a more conventional jazz band or something like that yeah i mean he's sort of single-handedly keeping the tuba alive you know right and now <laughs> he's got these 
projects for multiple pianists in one band, mm -hmm. you know? So, I mean, he's really, he's really kind of pushing the envelope when it comes to instrumentation. And then, of course, he has a knack for finding players who will really put in the time it takes to learn. His system now is, is much more evolved from when I studied with him. And, um, you know, it means a lot of dedication on the part of the people who play with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you've you've worked with several other members of the AACM. I mean, you mentioned Leroy, obviously, but also you've recorded with Joseph Jarman and Roscoe Mitchell. Um, do you have any official affiliation with the organization, or do you just work with these guys as peers? Or you know, what's uh, are you a member of the AACM at this point? No, I'm not a member, and um, but I I have enjoyed a kind of um, uh friendship and support from them i mean in the in, initially they were my mentors mm -hmm. and um i still think of henry and leroy well uh, leroy sadly is no longer with us but muhal and um uh joseph and roscoe as mentors i'm i don't consider them a peer but i have fortunately been able to share the stage with a lot of them or play on their recordings. And that's been fantastic. Yeah. And I've also, um, Muhal has been kind enough to invite me to present my music on some of the AACM events over the years mm -hmm, mm -hmm. without being, uh, without being a member. Right. Right. So tell me about your first trio with Lindsay Horner and Reggie Nicholson, how that group came together. You did uh, what two studio albums and a live album. And yes. then that was and the lifespan also, of that group, or they also played as the kind of rhythm section of my first quintet record, which is called the Extended Ensemble. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, even the Soundshine, and to which I added um, Dave Douglas and Marty Ehrlich right. to the right. trio. So, and then the trio stayed together from about. We started out in 1990. And I think we played through about 1997. And um, it started because I, I, was, I, I performed a solo piano piece on a, a concert at the Knitting Factory in the late 80s, like in 88 or 89. And Michael Dorff wanted to include it on one of those early compilation, like live from the Knitting Factory records that he put out, a whole series of those. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so this was, I think, volume two, and he included me, uh, this solo piece on it, and he said, you know, I'm, oh, there's a nice bird singing, I'm sitting outside. Oh. Um, um, there, uh, he said, I'm putting together a tour of Europe with six bands, and I wondered if you'd like to come with us, um, and maybe instead of coming solo, you know, it would make more sense for you to put together a trio or something. Mm -hmm. And so I did. And um, I knew both Lindsay and Reggie from their work with Muhal, okay. Richard Abrams. So mm -hmm. I thought that, you know, they would have a good sense of how to play my music, even though I didn't, I was just discovering what my music was. Um, but I was super lucky. We had a great chemistry and uh, we went off to, I mean, we, I think we had a couple rehearsals and went off to Europe for a month it was a jam-packed tour, like 31 concerts in 29 days or something. 
Um, and uh, we just clicked from the very first gig. And uh, in fact, our first gig was in Frankfurt, Germany, and I got two wonderful career opportunities out of that. A, a man came up to me named Gunnar Faba who said, I'd like to be your agent in Europe. And he booked us, you know, many, many gigs over several year period until about 1997, I think. And, um, and this guy named Michael Knute, who had a record label called Enemy Records that was mm -hmm. based partly in Munich and partly in New York, um, offered me a record deal for the band. So that was how I got my big break. Nice. Yeah. I, uh, I wonder, like lately I've been thinking about this, about what's left to be said with the piano trio. And I mean, I know you work with more unorthodox ensembles these days. So what do you think? Is the old school piano trio still a vehicle that can move music forward? Totally. I think it just depends on the players and the sensibility, you know, like their sensibilities. I mean, I, I guess I'm, I can't think of any particular trios that I've heard, but I'll tell you ones I'd like to hear. Um, I heard that Chris Davis did a trio recently. I can't remember who, if it was her project or somebody else's. That's something I'd want to hear. Mm -hmm. Um, um, I mean, I can think of a lot of young pianists or and, and older pianists, interesting pianists who, if they played in trio, I, I would still think either because of the way they approach the piano or the way they think about composition and, of course, the players they played with. I mean, I don't know if there's going to be a, a, a change as revolutionary as like Bill Evans' trio with Scott LaFaro and was that Paul Motion? Mm -hmm. Where, where you know, suddenly everybody's on equal footing, and it's not the piano that's in the front and forefront, and everybody else is accompanying. But I think you can still play with that idea and push it to its limits. I mean, that's something I've certainly, I feel like um, we've been able to do in Trio M with Matt Wilson and Mark Dresser mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in recent years, um, and we've had. I think the the biggest revelation about that for me was instead of thinking, and we don't always do it, but when we do it, it's the most fun for me. Is we don't um, we don't specify solos, and when we get to the point in the music where we're going to improvise, which might be right off the bat before we work our way into a tune, anybody can be in the forefront for any length of time, and then take a more accompanying role so we're constantly switching as opposed to okay now there's a piano solo for x number of choruses or for x amount of time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know to me that's really exciting it's, it's an idea that um a lot of other people do wayne shorter's been doing it with that with his current group and but you know this idea that the music um that the arrangement, and Mingus did it years ago even, but in a more dictatorial kind of way, <laughs> where where the arrangement is is being improvised as the music is being played. Yeah, yeah. Or improvised, you know. And so I think I think that could happen with any instrumentation, obviously. So I, I guess I'm, I'm not, I can't really say that, well, the piano trio is poised to, you know, but but I don't think I think it's still a viable vehicle is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, 
Yeah. Now you're you're a professor at UC Berkeley, right? Right. So what does that entail? How much time do you spend teaching? Do you lead student ensembles? Like what do you you know, what do you teach more or less? Yeah, I get to teach a wide variety. Well, I wouldn't say a wide variety, but a variety of things, which is which keeps it interesting and stimulating and challenging for me. Um, I was originally hired to teach um, some sort of, you know, African American music mm-hmm. uh, or jazz kind of class. You know, um, Berkeley. Um, doesn't have a, a performance degree either on the graduate level or on the undergraduate level uh, so it's not a conservatory and um, there's no jazz program and when I got there what I taught was basically it although thankfully um, after I'd been there for a year or two there um, one of the musicianship teachers who was a great uh, trumpet player and, and jazz composer and arranger started teaching a really advanced really thorough and and good um jazz theory class so that helped a lot for me to get more advanced players but i always took the approach of my class from the beginning was called current trends in improvisation based music Uh so um i basically kind of started from jazz in the late 50s and 60s sort of the post-bop beginning of everything breaking open period mm-hmm. um and then we would you know do music anywhere from there up to today but i also included you know um game pieces by john zorn and various you know conduction and all kinds of other ways of approaching improvisation that i had encountered um either on the downtown scene in new york or through the AACM, or, uh, you know, through my studies in India, we would look at Raga. So that's kind of the, the, the first class I ever taught, and it's one I still teach um, most years mm-hmm. um, today. But then out of that evolved a, a, a class called the Berkeley New Jazz Collective, which is, you know, like, for the more advanced players who have been through these other things, we get together and we'll play music by various innovative, you know, composers and musicians from the 60s on up to the present. And then the students also do their own writing and arranging for that class. Okay. Um, yeah. And then they, you know, they do, uh, they're sort of the performance ensemble of, and it, you know, but, but we've, I've been, because there was no jazz program there, I've been able to, um, I didn't have anyone dictating to me how to teach jazz or improvisational music and I've been able to make it about improvisational music and creative music and you know uh, less conventional jazz than you might find in a more straight ahead kind of jazz curriculum yeah yeah so that's been cool but then I started teaching a, a graduate seminar that was a composers and improvisers workshop and most of the graduate students um, the composers are really coming from a new music tradition or classical background. Um, so to get them thinking about improvisation was super fun, is super fun. And and then I also, some of the ethnomusicology students play and improvise and are interested in improvisational music. So they'll join that class. And it's it's an interesting 
way to look at issues in improvisational music from a number of standpoints. Yeah, yeah. And then I've I've gotten to teach a, I teach a class um, called the Shape of Jazz to Come, which is a lecture class on innovations in jazz from 1959 to 1969. And then I'm working on a new class with a, a 20th century and 21st century music scholar on pianism um, in the 20th and 21st centuries, and, and that'll include improvisation and, um, you know, extended techniques and new music for the piano and that kind of thing. So I really get to cover a wide range of things that all are either things I, you know, know and have studied myself or are things that I can then learn more about and and. Ex- Explore in a graduate or an upper division seminar kind of style mm-hmm. class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to ask you about just briefly about some of your collaborators, people that you've worked with a lot in more than one context, and how you would sort of describe those artistic relationships. So the first of those is Stomu Takeishi, the bass player. Yeah. yeah. Tell, uh, tell me what you get from him. What you know? What you've done with him and you know what the what the creative relationship there is yeah gosh I consider Stomu kind of my rock (laughs) you know like he's um we've been playing together now since around 1997 or 98 right when I was kind of making a transition away from the trio with Lindsay and Reggie I'd already started the band the same river twice Mm um and a friend of a mutual friend of Stomu's and mine introduced us when we were all in Europe at some festival um, of, of cellist named Michelle Kinney, who has now moved out to Minneapolis. But she introduced me to Stomu, and we just started talking about music and realized we we were thinking about improvisation and and how we wanted that to happen, you know, in the music in a way that wasn't conventional um, and realized we had a lot in common. So, you know, I asked him to play some gigs with me and he's been in just about every project I've done since then as yeah, a leader, yeah. I think. <laughs> and, um, you know, I love his sense of time. He's got a beautiful, I mean, he is so, he can be so precise, but he also can open it up in a way that it feels like he's almost playing free but he always knows where he is and can always like lay down the one or the time when you need it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love that, that there can be this elasticity or, and he's also, he's, you know, he, he can push and pull on the time in a way that I really enjoy. So there is this kind of elasticity in his playing. He also has a beautiful sound on his instrument. I mean, I'm especially um, fond of his acoustic, hollow body bass guitar but even on the on the electric bass he's got his own sound mm-hmm. uh, to me in the in in the similar way that Jocko Pastorius did or someone like that um anyway so he cares a lot about sound and timbre and that's that's another thing I really value like what does your instrument sound like and how does it blend with the other instruments and what kind of colors can you get out of it yeah. Anyway, yeah. so that's Stomu. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the second person that I wanted to ask about is Matt Wilson. Oh, I love Matt. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I mean, you've worked with him in Trio M and in other groups. So what does he give you as a, as a drummer and as a, you know, a co-leader or whatever, you know? Well, you know, in, in, in a way, this is a very different approach to time than Stomu, mm -hmm. for instance. You know, Matt can swing like crazy. And, you know, it, as, for, um, as much as I've enjoyed, like, l l approaching rhythm in different ways in my own writing and my own ensembles, when I play with Matt, I get to play with this great swinging drummer, and I still really enjoy playing with that. So, you know, he, he's just, he's buoyant and funny and uh, can turn on a dime, and I just, and, you know, and he's so much fun to play with because he's always having a great time and always smiling, and it's an uplifting experience to be on the bandstand with him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, the third person, the final person I'd like to ask about is uh, Chris Speed, the saxophonist. Oh, uh, yeah, and clarinetist, actually. That's right, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, Chris is such a fabulous musician. Um, I mean, the only time I've really played with him is when, you know, he was a member of the same River Twice. Mm -hmm. And um, at that time, I, I, was, I was kind of moving away from the traditional jazz quintet and thinking a little bit more about chamber music. And, and the fact that Chris could, like really burn on tenor saxophone one minute and then play this, you know, really, I mean, he had his own voice on the clarinet, but this much more kind of orchestral instrument, you know, the next was something that really appealed to me. Um, and, you know, as I said, he's just such a great musician. And um, yeah, I mean, he seems to be one of those guys that kind of blurs the line between sort of very modern but still rooted in post-bop kind of jazz, and then he goes into that kind of chamber music, orchestral sort of zone, you know? Yeah, but also you can hear that he's listened to a lot of cool alternative pop music and and Balkan music, and, you know, so he's 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 got this huge stylistic range, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now... In the early 2000s, you devoted a lot of time to studying Indian music. You mentioned that, uh, and you were both in India and the U.S. So what inspired that journey, and what did you learn about your own music in the process? Well, I think it. Um, I, I got interested in the harmonium um, in the mid-'90s uh, for a couple reasons. One was that... Um, I wanted to have a second instrument. I, I guess it, that you know that goes back to the influence of the AACM. Many of those guys being multi instrumentalists, um, but I didn't want to play an electric keyboard. So at the time, Henry Threadgill had a band called Make a Move with Tony Cedrus, who doubled on accordion and harmonium. Mm -hmm. um, so so. Uh, I, while I would still love to learn accordion, um, I haven't I haven't actually really put in the time to do that. But the harmonium is a fairly simple instrument to pick up in many ways, and um, 
And at the same time, I had gotten really interested in yoga and meditation and had a, you know, a teacher from India um, and was getting into chanting and devotional music and all that kind of stuff, as well as Indian classical music. And um, so I think it was all of those things kind of came together in the mid-90s. And that's what, so I did some studies on my own in New York and then I decided to apply. If I, I thought I was, um, friends were starting to write, you know, music and inviting me to do gigs with them on the harmonium. And I thought, well, if I'm really going to do that, I'd like to study with a harmonium master in a tradition that really uses the harmonium in a serious way. Mm-hmm. And um, so I had done a project um, with Dave Douglas and Samir Chatterjee. Uh, who's a great tabla player from Calcutta. And and Samir introduced me to a really fine harmonium soloist in Calcutta. And I got a Fulbright to go over and study with him for a year. I didn't actually study only with him. I studied with a number of different people um, and traveled all over and heard it in folk music contexts and classical and light classical. And um, it was just an amazing year. But I never really had the intention of performing or being playing professionally, um, playing Indian music professionally. And what I really wanted to see was what, how would that find its way into my music as uh-huh. a composer and improvising pianist. And the first project I wrote um, or did when I came back from India was something called Be Bread, with, um, with which was with Stomu and. A few different drummers. The probably the main one was Elliot Umberto Cavi, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then um, sometimes it would be a quartet with the two of them and Brandon Ross on guitar, and sometimes it was a quartet with Kung Vu on trumpet. So, and Kung was using a lot of effects in those days, and Brandon would play either acoustic guitar and banjo or electric guitar. So I was kind of also it was my first kind of foray into an electroacoustic ensemble. But but most of that music was inspired on that record was inspired in some way by my studies and travels in India. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that record. I reviewed that for Jazz Is when it came out. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So I'm curious about your involvement in the Handful of Keys project, because that record just came out recently, and you are kind of the centerpiece of it. I mean, you wrote the liner notes, your track was the single that was used to promote the album. Was that a surprise to you, the way that whole thing came <laughs> together? <laughs> yeah, uh, you can say it. And, and I have to say a delightful surprise. But I remember getting the call about the show, and I'm like, wait, is this Winton's idea or is this, you know, somebody else's idea? Because it would never have occurred to me that Winton would have been interested in my music. Right, um, yeah, like how has this guy heard of me, you know? <laughs> yeah, so uh, fortunately I have a, a nice friend um, who works at Jazz at Lincoln Center now, and I think he's kind of behind the way it is starting to open up. Um, I think that's been something he's been trying to encourage there since he's been there. And I think, and I think he's also likes me and my music and wanted to bring it to Winton's attention. So he did. And apparently Winton liked it and said, yeah, let's invite Myra. And, um, 
so that was great. And I said, well, you know, I don't really want to do a standard. I don't do that, but I'd love if we could do one of my tunes. And they said, okay, great. And um, I was really fortunate that Ted Nash wanted to do the um, arrangement of it. And he did a beautiful job, I think. And and then, you know, like I, I got there for these rehearsals and these gigs and um, was so um, impressed by how warm and friendly and open everybody was. And, and I really saw that coming from Winton, you know, like that he had... I had, you know, I really didn't know much about jazz at Lincoln Center, just assumed it would never be the kind of venue that would welcome the music that I play or the music of my peers or mentors and couldn't have been more wrong in in terms of the reception that I got Mm -hmm. and had a great time playing with everybody and Winton and in, in particular said, Myra, I really want you to do what you do and, um, and you know, it turned out to be super fun. And then I got that lovely uh, invitation to write the liner notes. And I mean, you really brought something out of him, you know, in the performance. His solo is, you know, is very, it's very hot. And you're sort of goading him on in a way you uh-huh. know, as, during the performance. It's really, uh, it's oh. really something. So Thank you. And that was also a thrill for me that he wanted to solo on my piece and that you know, it gave it, it, and I have to say, we, we got to do three nights of it, and then we got to perform it again when the band was out here in Oakland. And um, the more we played it, the more interactive and fun it became. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In in your liner notes, you mentioned paying tribute to Cecil Taylor in your performance. Did you did you ever have you ever studied with him or anything like that? No. Um, I certainly got to meet him several times, and I w- it was really a thrill for me when I first met him that he already knew who I was and, you know, supported me, mm-hmm. supported my music. I guess that would have been probably in the 90s also, or maybe, yeah, probably. I didn't really start really being on the scene until the early 90s in a way I think that he might have heard me. I was playing with Butch Morris and various people that he already had a relationship with mm-hmm. but um i used to love to hang out with him and um uh when we were both playing at the um the portland jazz festival in 2008 i got to introduce him oh, nice. and so got to spend a lot of time hanging out with him backstage before and after his concert and we had a lovely really nice time Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. being around him and but I mean he was so important to me as a young you know college you know just getting into jazz when I mean I, I jumped pretty quickly from Bud Powell and McCoy Tyner to Cecil Taylor like as soon as I heard him like this again it was like the Leroy experience where this you know my world just lit up and i would listen to in particular one of his solo records over and over again air above mountains oh i love that and album. Yeah. yeah 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 and i just you know so he then i got into unit structures and that kind of stuff but it, it was always his solo playing that was the most moving and inspiring for me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i i mean i can definitely hear some sort of taylor-esque passages for example on the alive in the house of saints record uh-huh. but but i'm curious what you think other pianists can really take away from his work because it seems to me that his compositional style 
is so totally bonded to his technique and his and his performance that it's really difficult to adopt it or borrow it. But maybe yeah. as a pianist yourself, you see it differently. I don't know. Yeah, I think I see it more like it. he changed the way we look at what the piano could do and be. And he he took this very percussive approach at times. So that was certainly something I got from him. I, I mean, I think I have a tendency to be a very physical and gestural player anyway. Mm-hmm. So that it kind of gave me the freedom to explore the piano and find my own way of doing, you know, using it as, as drums or something. The other thing is that he does have this very specific harmonic language. I've heard some pianists borrow that, but, mm-hmm. but it's, so, it's so obviously his that I don't think you can, I don't know that I've heard anyone take it and go someplace really different with it Um, but I have heard pianists do that and he also has this very particular uh, contrary motion technique where his left and right hands move out from the center to the extreme ranges of the piano at the same time Mm -hmm. and I've heard pianists use that that's something I've borrowed certainly from him and I've heard other pianists do it in slightly different ways yeah Um, Jason Moran did this beautiful um solo piano piece for a video that I think Carol Walker um, made with him. I could, I, I hope I'm not getting the artist wrong, but it was something I saw at um, a small museum in Paris a few years ago. And he was definitely using his own harmonies and a different uh, style of the way he played the chords, but it was very reminiscent to me. It would have been Mm-hmm. I thought for sure that it had to have been inspired by Cecil. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to ask a little bit more about the piece from Handful of Keys, the Strawberry, um, because the opening solo, I'm curious what you were drawing on there, because I hear a lot of sort of New Orleans, like Professor Longhair type stuff in there. So I'm curious what, you know, what you were you pulling know, my, from. Yeah, I can hear how you could hear that, but that's not actually... Um, my roots as much as the Chicago blues style. So, I mean, I grew up listening to pianists like Otis Spann and Jimmy Yancey. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I'm I'm drawing on, especially Otis Spann in that opening thing. Like you could, you know, I, I mean, my first piano teacher um, when I was growing up who was teaching me classical music is is still a great blues and boogie woogie player in the Chicago tradition. And, you know, so I learned the blues as a little girl at the end of my lessons for fun, you know? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, um, and so that, I feel like that's more the roots of my music than jazz or classical music even. So I feel like that's kind of what I was drawing on there, but I do feel like I'm kind of, uh, then, um, sort of intimating a kind of New Orleans feel in that last, I can't remember how it happened on that version, but that last exchange between me and Ali the drummer, mm-hmm. some of that to me feels more New, or- New Orleans kind yeah. of yeah. vibe. Now, in a completely different sort of direction, you recently also made the MZM album with Mia Masoka and Zena Parkins. 
So right. tell me a little bit about that project, how it came together, and what your thoughts are about that music generally. Yeah, which is like almost diametrically opposed to the handful of keys. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. yeah um, well, we're all old friends. I mean, um, Zena and I played for a long time with Butch Morris together. Uh, we were both kind of core members of his ensemble between like you know, 86 and 96 or something. I think um, Zena continued to play with him even longer. But so she's someone I've played with a lot, um, but always in a context like that. And Mia, I don't think we'd ever played together before, but we knew of each other. Uh And what happened was Zena was guest teaching at Mills College, which is here in Oakland, And Mia and her husband, George Lewis, were doing a semester-long residency at UC Berkeley. And so um, as part of George was giving, uh, was kind of a guest lecturer. And around his visit, we planned an improvisation symposium. And I thought, well, I'd like to do some, include some performance on this. And really what I'd like to do is play with all these great women who are around right now who I either haven't played with before or I haven't played with in years. So I invited Mia and Zena, and Nicole Mitchell actually played with us at, at that very first concert. Uh-huh. Um, and that was super fun. And then, you know, Zena ended up getting this um, annual position where she would teach at Mills for the spring semester. And Mia still has roots in the Bay Area. So it became easy for the three of us to get together again. And we played a concert at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts that was that was really fun and exciting and and we just thought, you know, we should <coughs> excuse me, we should make a record. And so we did. The following year we um did another concert when you know, at the time of year when they were both out here at UC Berkeley and recorded it and now we're just hoping to do more gigs because we really love playing together but it's you know we're coming from especially me as with more of a jazz background really coming at this from different points of view and approaches to music and improvising but I think because we were all part of the downtown music scene for so long and have a lot of similar reference points mm-hmm. um you know, it's it's really fun to play with them. Yeah, yeah. You also made the uh, the Tiger Trio album in 2016, which was another all female group. What was the what was the story behind that record? Because I haven't heard it, so I'm curious about it. Yeah, well, I got to um, you know I did this. I was an artist in residence at a at a, this place called the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, which is. Um, visual art, theater, dance, and music, mm-hmm. uh, you know, place in in San Francisco. And um, as part of that, I got to curate a festival of jazz and improvisational music. And I thought my secret agenda was to have as many women on the festival as I could, but not say anything about women on the festival. Right. You know, because I'm getting a little tired of... Um, you know, women in jazz, this and that. I, I, I just feel like, come on, this is the 21st century. There are a lot of women, okay, not as many as men, 
but a lot of women jazz musicians who are phenomenal musicians playing all over the world, making a career of it, and still you don't see as many of them on festivals and being presented by big institutions as you should, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, that's a long-winded way to get around to. I, I was able to curate myself in one performance on this festival, and so I invited Nicole Mitchell and Joelle Leandra. Um, Nicole and I had played on a bunch of a few, several of her projects or performances, and I loved playing with her. And Joelle and I had played when she was a guest teacher at Mills when I first moved out here to Berkeley. And I thought I knew the two of them had played together, and I'd played with each of them. So I just thought it would be fun to try it as a trio. And we had a great performance on this festival. And so Joelle said, we have to record this. I'll try to set something up in Paris. And so I think a year or so later, we went over to Paris and played a concert in a, in a gallery, in an art gallery, and it was recorded for Rogue Art. Nice. nice. So we're in the process now of trying to put together um, some gigs, some concerts in the fall of 2018. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess my last question brings us up to the more or less the present moment because you just recorded the second Snowy Egret album uh, on the East Coast. So that group has been together for five years now? Or yes, a I guess a, it'll, a little over five because our first concert was in February of 2012, so five and a half years, something uh -huh, like that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. And how has that ensemble's music and everything sort of evolved from 2012 to now and from album number one to album number two? Well, um, I would say, uh, I mean, this was another one of those really fortunate, like, instant chemistry kinds of things, as I described with my trio with Lindsay and Reggie. Mm -hmm. Um you know, from the very first concert, it felt like something special. Um, again, you know, with this focus on people's sounds, like the timbre, the, the sound quality of the band, and also um, this just kind of generosity of spirit, like everybody wanted to make the music sound great, but nobody wanted to show off. And, um, and... It's it's made, but just incredible ears and chops, and this is a band where I really have been able to realize that that thing that I was talking about with Trio M, where we don't, you know, I'll bring in a piece and or an arrangement, or we'll arrange it together, um, and we'll do that for the first few times we play it in concert, and then we just let that go and let let the music emerge out of what whatever improvisation is happening and you know it people don't expect to take a solo in the same place every time and you know it's really very fluid and can start in a completely different time feel or dynamic or vibe and work its way into eventually into the tune maybe we'll play the tune in a completely different way Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know. So I really love that aspect. And I think I think that's probably the biggest change is just that we've we started with a really great chemistry and it's just developed the more we've played together. 
um, I actually haven't listened to the mixes yet. I'm going to do that this weekend. So for and we did a bunch of new music. So I, I I'm not really sure what I can tell you about how the music has changed, but I certainly um, know everybody better, and so was trying to write music that I thought they would sound great on and um, enjoy playing. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I don't know beyond that if I could, <laughs> you know, tell you how it's different. But I will say, you know, we are playing now a whole new book of music, and that's really fun. Yeah, yeah. All right. That was my interview with Myra Melford. Thanks again for listening to the Burning Ambulance podcast, and I hope you'll come back for the next one.